Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Grinegar. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon community to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways, to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome back Brooke Little to the show to talk about death songs, funeral music, and execution ballads. Brooke is a PhD candidate in musicology at Northwestern University who specializes in Tudor Queens, music education and music performance at the 16th century English court. She holds a BM in voice performance, MME in vocal music education, both from the University of Missouri, Columbia, as well as an MM in musicology from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Her thesis, entitled The Musical Education and Involvement of the Six Wives of Henry VIII, focuses on questions of gender, sexuality, female education and performance in the first half of the English 16th century. You can find Brooke on Instagram at Lady Tudor Music. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Brooke. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I'm really excited about it. So we're, we're going to be discussing something a bit different to, to other episodes that I've done. So mm-hmm. basically what we know of the musical events of each of the, the death or burials of each of the six queens, so Henry VIII's wives. So let's just start. Do you want to start talking about Catherine of Aragon, perhaps? Yeah. Um, be- before we kind of dive into Catherine of Aragon, I thought I kind of give a little bit of an overview because there's so many dynamic shifts that happen just with the the funerals themselves between Catherine of Aragon to Catherine Parr. We yeah. kind of meander through this uber Catholic ceremonial procession ricochet and with Catherine Parr's funeral to the first Protestant funeral ever, and then kind of come on back with Anna Cleves in 1557 and kind of doing it by the books under Mary the First. So Catherine of Aragon, 
I'll just go ahead and read a bit. There's there's not a terrible amount of musical information um, like many of the other processions that follow her queenship. I think that the ceremony kind of gets a bit overshadowed by, in this case, the funeral of Jane Seymour, which I kind of envision as that being the way it should have been almost with how much details given in some of the chronicles. But um, I was so struck by in preparing for today, I read through quite a bit of the letters and papers, and I was so struck by how much back and forth there was about her funeral correspondence, and there was so much controversy surrounding it. But musically speaking, we have the only thing that's really mentioned besides a mass, just a general mass, is something that's called um, a dirige, or we think of it today as a dirge, which is, it can be a standalone piece, or this kind of lament for the dead, like we think of today, but it can also be part of a mass, and there's actually a, a Joscan de Pre mass dirige or a dirge mass that um, is quite lengthy, and it could have possibly been something that they might have used to celebrate her her soul <laughs> departing the earth in that manner. But um, yeah, musically speaking, she has the least amount of detail. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Considering, of course, how long she was on the throne for. But of course, right. when we consider the circumstances of of her fall and her death and, and everything, it kind of makes sense. And I totally agree with you. I remember when I was looking at letters and papers and looking at the correspondence about her funeral as well, I, I always, I suppose I shouldn't have been struck by it, but I was, how Henry right. was, you know, until the very end, of course, saying, well, she wasn't his actual wife, but you know, what can I get of her property anyway? So sure. you know, he was sure. exactly. double standards, right, with Henry? Right. And um, I was also really struck by, so she requests one of her things that she requests in her final will and testament is for 500 masses to be sung for her soul. And of course, Henry doesn't um, allow that to happen. But with Jane Seymour's, he orders for 1200 masses for her soul to be said. So it's almost like he's continuing to musically denigrate or punish her even in death and kind of almost um, unintentionally or intentionally asking for her soul to remain longer in purgatory so oh, just through yeah, the that's a really interesting point yeah I've never thought of it from that perspective yeah. <laughs> so what about um Anne Boleyn of course another controversial end there so what did you discover about her death and burial in terms of, of music musically speaking there's uh, obviously a lot of uh, myth and legend that goes on there but there are no there's no musical evidence whatsoever of any kind of music associated with her funeral or um, tossing into the arrow chest at all. But I, I think a bit later, we'll kind of touch on a death rock me to sleep, but they didn't play that at her funeral or as no. they were kind of, <laughs> that would have been too perfect, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's one of those myths that we, we sort of, yeah, I think people would have liked there to have been something right. to mark, you know, the death of such an extraordinary woman. But sadly, the evidence just points to there having been nothing really. So that's really right. interesting. And then we'll come back to, yeah, we'll come back to her death. Yeah. So Jane Seymour, I think this is where we're gonna, we're going to get some detail. Right, right. And I had to kind of, there are several different types of what are called requiem masses. So there is a requiem eternum mass, and that's kind of the the final one said over one's or sung rather over one's soul in during the burial. But leading up to that point, there's almost twelve days of masses being sung, and there's different types of masses that are being sung during that time. So in the 
mornings, I believe during um, matins is what's called the the dirge or the dirge again. There's a dirge singing. And then the evening, there's something there's something called a placebo being sung. And that's where actually we get the word placebo is from the placebo singing or placebo singers of um, this antiphon over the dead being sung at Vespers during the office of the dead. And so we would have had that every day, as well as an, a dirge being sung every day, as well as more than likely a high mass or a requiem mass being sung every day. And so if you think about it, it's probably hundreds of choir and musician personnel having to work for this almost two week span just to celebrate Jane Seymour's death. And, yeah, and is this, is this, did this take place at um, Hampton Court, the chapel? Is this where this is, where she's laying in state there? Correct. Correct. Yes, there. And then upon her move, removal to Windsor Castle, there's this other aspect, which is really interesting, of the bells, a doleful bell being rung. And there's this kind of medieval belief um, in early modern England that bells actually can ward off evil spirits or, and that goes for with christenings and celebratory bells kind of warding off demonic forces against a baby, but for a corpse, it's kind of helping the soul find its way to purgatory just a bit faster as the body is processing. So that's really interesting too, is that there's all this talk of the doleful bells also being rung with these horses draped in black velvet. And it's just this fabulous, fantastic kind of thing. Goodness, I've never heard of that. That's really, really interesting. Did you want to say anything else about Jane? I mean, Jane Jane has, I think of the account of Jane's funeral procession, much like we might read or interpret the Chronicle of Anne Boleyn's coronation. It's that detailed. And Jane's funeral is all, it, it's almost a stand-in for her own coronation with how dramatic and charismatic the musical the music is as well as she's laid and stayed in cloth of gold and even crowned so it's almost a the coronation she didn't get to have or the coronation that henry's henrifying to the people that this was your queen you know so yeah that's that's another really interesting point i wonder if he did well i don't actually think henry felt guilt but if he was a normal person i wonder if he did feel a little guilty that she didn't get her coronation and she provided him with the you know the longed for male heir that's really interesting yeah but um this recording and this timeline is so poignant because we are on that anniversary of that in between the birth of prince edward and her death and so october 1537 would have been an incredibly dramatic and dynamic sonic month in Tudor England. So you're going from these celebratory bells and celebratory gunfire and the trumpets blasting almost in her face as it happens in Hampton Court um, with the christening procession going from that to this complete 180 shift musically and celebrating not only her contribution to the crown, but also celebrating her life with all these incredibly elaborate musical celebrations of her death. Again, that's that's really interesting because you're completely right. There would have been all the celebrations for Edward's birth and, you know, the court in this sort of high state and then suddenly right. plummeted to this state of mourning, this terrible state of right. mourning. So that, yeah, it's really interesting to think about what that would have been like yeah. for the people that were there. Yeah, and um, I, I almost transitioning to to integrating silences with her death too. I imagine there would have been, you know, a very solemn mood and that along with that goes silence as well as those kind of singular, singular 
sounding or tolling of just the doleful bell, there would have been quite a bit of room for quiet um, in between the masses that would have been sung in these sacred spaces also. Now, although Jane is the one that, of course, provided the the air finally Anne of Cleves of course is the is the only one that is in fact buried at the high altar at Westminster Abbey in this very right. you know privileged position that that Mary the first kind of allowed her to be buried at so what about Anne um her burial at Westminster and I know there are some primary sources about her burial so what right. about the musical elements there to do with with her death you know um about let's see seven years ago I was doing a bit of research at the British Library, and I came across one of the Edgerton manuscripts, the Edgerton MS 2642, which talks about there's there's a Latin, a 16th century Latin um, interpretation of the events surrounding her funeral. And one of the really interesting things that that isn't discussed in the later kind of 17th century accounts of her funeral is that in this Edgerton manuscript, there's several mentions of a noble choir of men in this manuscript, and then also the singing of solemn psalms. And so that could that could be things like what we've talked about before, the dirge or a placebo, or even at times they might have integrated what's called a de profunctis, which is a hymn for the dead, or it could also be the singing of psalms in that too. So it's really a, a very cool document. And I, I keep coming back to this manuscript over time. So Anne of Cleves, actually, she, I know I did, I did kind of mention that Jane Seymour's funeral account is quite grand and quite prolific, but we do get a bit, a bit more of a play by play with Anne of Cleves and some of the later, almost secondary sources um, that again, we discussed, there was a dirge that was performed and this one is the account of Anna Cleves is really interesting because it's the only one to mention specifically performing a requiem mass. And so that sounds very, very Mary the First to me, doing everything by the book. So I imagine there must have been some kind of um, taverner or a Fairfax mass requiem performed some of these early Henrician um, composers that Mary definitely tries to kind of bring back into the public consciousness of the time. It might be worth just mentioning for anyone listening, because I know that lots of people have been to Westminster Abbey and then leave kind of saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea Anna Cleves was buried right. there because it's so easy to miss it, isn't it? Right. You know, yeah. so, so maybe just for anyone listening, next time you're there, when you're looking at the high altar, on the right is where Anna Cleves is buried. But if you sort of jump onto the other side because you can't obviously go onto the high altar on the other side is where you'll see her name Anne of Cleves so it is easy to miss but but try and try and have a look at it and pause there for a moment if you can because like I say this is a, an incredibly privileged position I think she's buried right. quite close to I want to say Anne Neville but you know if they're not marked it's so easy to miss right. of course, and everyone heads straight for Elizabeth's tomb don't they in the great Tudor yeah. chapel so yeah I believe on uh, the high altar side there is there's kind of what looks to be almost a duplicate of the panels that are at Hever Castle exactly. that has her symbol on it. And of course, um, her successor, Catherine Howard, well, she, you know, met a terrible end as well, a very controversial end. So was it, did you find much about the music associated with her death? Or is it just a matter of, well, when you're charged with high treason, there's not going to be very much. Right. Not, not too much um, pomp or circumstance, unless you could somehow, as we kind of touched on, associate bringing the block to her chamber to practice as some kind of, you know, timed rehearsal. I mean, mostly that's just sad and, you know, extra creepy for the listeners for this 
October listening. So. Exactly. That always breaks my heart, that story, actually, yeah. thinking of, we don't know exactly her age, but, you know, we, we think yeah. she was probably teenager still, you know, which right. is awful thinking of her practicing. And of course, because people at the time want to make this good end, don't they? They right. want to, you know, end in a way that's, well, especially because she was queen as well. She's probably trying to make this her final performance, really. You're right. So she's rehearsing yeah, for this. You're right. And there is this almost a script for execution speeches and performance on the scaffold and that willingness and wanting to die well. So I think it speaks well of her character that she wanted to practice, you know, even though it's awful. So you're right, actually, because she does, you know, she's often portrayed as this sort of flighty, flighty right. girl that didn't really take anything seriously. And I think that is really unfair, to be honest. And I think we see with her very courageous end, you know, right. meeting such an awful end with such courage that she, of course, was made of much more substance. And um, and and yes, I think people find it hard to think how how do people just accept and stand on the scaffold and say, you know, wish the king well type thing. But of course, as you say, there was a set script that you were right. expected to conform to. If not, of course, you're leaving behind friends and families that will be punished for it, right? Right. Correct. And it's a standard cultural practice for the time as well as you have an audience. So it is. And that's why importantly, just as a side note, when people divert from it, even slightly like Anne Boleyn did in hers by not acknowledging her fault, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. um, it speaks, it speaks volumes of what's happened in that, in that particular situation. Um, All right. So what about Catherine Parr? I think you mentioned this as the first Protestant funeral. One thing that's really, really fascinating about Catherine Parr's funeral is that this is the very first funeral to have musical selections performed in English. So they perform and the type of piece that they perform is a te deum, which normally is used for very celebratory occasions previously, but they perform a te deum in English and more than likely it is performed in unison. So we're going from these kind of super polyphonic, very complicated, ornate musical pieces to a very simplified piece performed in English um, that's emphasizing the text. Um, So it's it's almost like going from the stained glass windows of Saint-Chapelle to just a a plain pane of glass yeah. <laughs> musically. So very, very fascinating. I think they did a reenactment of her funeral at Sudley in 2012, I believe it was. Yeah, they did. Now that you, you mentioned it, I remember also they set up the room where it was, they had like Catherine Parr lying down. And I think it was Lady Jane Grey that was chief mourner, right. I believe, yes. standing by her bed. So it was very moving actually. Yeah, that's Lady Jane Grey. That is an interesting, I, I I knew that, but it is, that's an interesting fact, isn't it? Who plays chief mourner where uh, Lady Mary at Jane Seymour's and it was um, the Duke of Suffolk's oldest daughter, who I cannot remember her name, that was the chief mourner at Catherine of Aragon. You're right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So really interesting how it's all these kind of great ladies performing as chief mourner and they have to attend all of the masses also so would have been a lot a lot to a lot to attend to I'm a sure a lot of yes yes <laughs> a lot of masses to listen to all right well let's let's briefly return to or, or touch on the death of Queen Jane so that's a ballad and and mm-hmm. maybe tell us what that piece might tell us about the circumstances of Prince Edward's birth oh it's so interesting this is the this ballad discusses the possibility that 
Queen Jane underwent a cesarean section. Um, so I think that that is part of how we get that rumor that is how Prince Edward came to be and how how he came into the world. This piece is really fascinating for a number of reasons. It appears in this kind of late 16th century um, book of ballads, something to do with the golden roses. I think I'll have to I'll have to look it up for you. But it it kind of has a telephonic presence from that point until the 20th century when it kind of becomes and transforms with each century and each musical time period into this kind of 20th century folk song. So Joan Baez has done it now, which is really, really interesting too, but it's, it's quite good. <laughs> Actually don't know if I've heard it. I'm, I'm going to need to listen to it immediately after this conversation. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's an article by Alistair Vannon in the Folk Music Journal talking about the historiography of the piece. And it's had several different names, the woeful death of Queen Jane. Okay, here it is. I found it was 1592 from a collection of ballads called The Crown Garland. And a lot of times you'll find that with with ballads is that you'll find the text one place. And then it's just assumed that it was either sung from a tune you might have picked up from a ballad singer, or it was there was some kind of instrumental accompaniment accompaniment that would have gone along with the piece. So that's the the earliest sort of date associated with this right. the ballad, right. and hence the story of the C section was already yes. Yes. doing the rounds at that point. What's also interesting is that it kind of made the rounds and it somehow was a super prominent ballad in Scotland, interestingly enough. So it wasn't as popular in the south of England, but it kind of, like I said, kind of traveled a bit and there was a bit of a game of telephone with it. So it not only migrated north a bit, but it also passed through the centuries as well. And it talks about, there's about eight verses talking about Henry VIII's experience, hearing about the birth of Prince Edward and about the pain that Jane Seymour goes through in childbirth as well. Do you want to mention now the, the the song or the ballad associated with Anne Boleyn that sometimes people say that she has written this herself? You know, I've seen that written oh. so many times. Oh, Death, oh, Rock right. Me Asleep, which is beautiful. It's, it's really haunting and beautiful. It's beautiful. Do you have a favourite performance of it? Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know now. I know I've heard several versions that are that are just stunning, really. So stunning. It's yeah. It's Did you have one? You sound like you've got one. Well, um, I think that there's one that Alamire performed on that yes. on the album album. But um honestly, uh Jay Britton, um, the oh. Tudor songbook, she has a beautiful voice and I love when she sings the piece too. So it's it's so moving, isn't it? It's a really moving piece. Yeah, and another uh Tudor mystery, a Tudor musical mystery in this piece. And you're right, there's a bit of legend in this and for a musicologist it's also really interesting because it started appearing in all these kind of um music history textbooks in the 70s uh -huh. that Anne had composed this piece and so I could find a handful of actual music history textbooks from the 70s and 80s that identify Anne Boleyn as the composer of this piece and I think people do they really want to believe that she yeah. is you know, while in death row in the captivity of the tower, she just, you know, pulls out the quill and an inkwell and just just goes to town <laughs> with this piece of music. So yeah, I think it's because people are desperate for her to have had 
her chance to speak. You, do you know what right. I mean? Like it's, it's the same yeah. with the letter at the tower, which I have to say my dear friend Sandra Vasoli does believe were, was in fact Anne's last words. So that's still open for debate. But I think it's the same sort of thing. We want her to have had the opportunity to have her say, because otherwise it's so right. it's so unjust, right? Yeah, I just got through re-watching. There's a little mini documentary on Oh Death Rock Me to Sleep where a man called um, Martin Pope goes through the tower and he argues that, and they show several shots of him finding the poem in a manuscript at the British Library, but he doesn't identify the MS number or anything. And then Eric Ives kind of comes into the to the scene and says, you know, actually she didn't have the opportunity to pen this work um, for obvious reasons. And there's no account of it from Master Kingston whatsoever, but it does appear the the musical notation appears in several music manuscripts. There's one in the Hammond part books that I actually found recently. So that's a five part book set. So there's actually five separate books that have parts or musical arrangements for just the the music part. And it, it only says, oh, death. So there's not really with the text at all, but there's a later manuscript uh, English, the, the English songbook, 1600 to 1675, volume six, where it actually, it actually is one of the first um, music manuscripts to, that includes both the text of Oh Death Rock Me to Sleep with musical notation. But that's also quite a bit later, um, that kind of timeline. But do you think that's when it, it dates from the song dates from all the music dates from the 17th century, do you think? Yeah, I would I would guess it's um probably turn of the century honestly because it's included that um the one that's included that has text and music is in a, a collection of lute pieces by um John Dowlin. So I would guess it's it's around that time and there's also this work in Italian art song called Amarilli Mia Bella which is a really famous kind of Italian art song that's also in that collection. But yeah, that's that would be my guess is it's probably turn of the century, if not, as you say, 17th century. We can dream though, can't we? We can dream. We can dream. And I recommend that if people haven't listened to it, that certainly, you know, go and do that. You can just Google and it comes up on YouTube and all sorts of right. places because it is, it is very, very moving. So mm-hmm. do you want to just tell us a little bit then about the tradition of execution balladry um, oh and any specific ones that you've, you know, kind of come across in your research? Right. I, I feel that I have to give our listeners a bit of a trigger warning. These are not for the faint of heart and definitely showcase a bit of England's more macabre and probably barbaric practices of public execution. So let's just put that out there. But a lot of this is from the work of uh, Dr. Una McKilvena, who's just come out with a fantastic book on on execution ballads throughout early modern Europe, 1500 to 1900. So it's a practice that went on quite a long time. But I think it is Susanna Lipscomb that mentions in her um, witch documentary that witch burnings were quite a holiday atmosphere. And (laughs) yeah, execution ballads kind of play into that fact because executions are the city or the community's Friday night football of the time. So there would have been snacks and so many people there and vendors who would sell these ballads either about the crime that the perpetrator had committed or later giving an account of the execution and how it went down. So they would sell these broadside ballads. They're kind of a 
larger sheet with lyrics. And then after a person might've purchased this ballad sheet, they would then go to what's called a ballad singer. So the words, the paper and the song are a separate thing. So you go and at an execution, you might pick up an execution ballad, the sheet itself, and then later visit a ballad singer who might sing you the tune to it. And the, the tunes are quite simple and repetitive. So Green Sleeves is one that they set many of the execution ballads to. Right, um, okay, that's so interesting. And and just remind me, because I wanted to ask you something about Green Sleeves, but I'll do that after yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> but I found a couple of really interesting ones. And there were two separate ballads written for the conspirators of the Babington plot. So the first one was written in around 1586-ish. And it does talk about, and this is an execution that's a hanging, drawing, and quartering of five Catholic men, right? And they, they give those kind of details in the song. But what's interesting is that between that round of executions and that ballad and the second round is that the text changes a bit because Queen Elizabeth decides to pardon the second round of conspirators. She decides to allow the executioner to hang them until dead before drawing and quartering. So the text talks about how merciful and good Queen Elizabeth is for allowing the the conspirators to avoid that pain of death. Um, but there's also a there's also a woman in that's also executed in the second round. So that might have also had something right. to do with it. Yeah. So very, very grisly. And it's horrific, isn't it? It's so difficult for it, us to understand how this was a, a public event that people went to, as you say, that where there were people selling snacks. Like, you know, how yeah. can you eat a snack while you're watching someone be hung, drawn, and quartered? I can't possibly understand. But right you know, different times. That's really interesting what you say about buying the the sort of ballad and then having someone else sing it. That's fascinating. I never heard of that. So would you, would there be people, you know, in, in every local village that are the sort of ballad singer that you go to, or do you go right. to a pub or where, where do you find these people? Yeah, you, you go to a, a ballad singer and they're, they're very poor, you know, itinerant musicians that are singing these tunes to the person who's bought or wants to learn the ballad so that they can in turn go sing it at home if they want to, or sing it with their children if they want to. And the ballad tunes, again, they're simple enough that an untrained musician can pick it up quite easily in the streets um, with probably much noise happening. So they're very redundant, very, again, very repetitive. Um, the very small range, the melody has a really tiny range or, you know, like Greensleeve is very catchy so that it's easy for people paying the ballad singer to catch on quite easily. But they were very poor people, you know. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and so green sleeves. It's interesting that you brought it up. I just um, recently, just a couple of days ago, recorded a review of uh, several episodes of the Tudors with my lovely friend Dr. Owen Emerson. We always have such a good time. But in the yeah. one of the episodes, we were actually reviewing Henry VIII is sitting there in his privy chamber, and he is in fact composing green sleeves, and he's got the lute out. And I don't know if you remember Jonathan Rhys Myers do. doing that. I had totally forgotten the scene. But of course. There's a lot of confusion as well about green sleeves. Did he compose right. it? When did it come out? Who's it talking about? Why is she wearing green? All this sort of stuff. So have you come across anything to do with green sleeves in your work? No, not not related to Henry VIII. The majority of what I've come across with green sleeves has been with these these ballads. And because that was that was such a typical ballad tune. 
da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. and I think it, it was also related to that rhythm is um either a galliard or um, a pavan I can't remember but it's one of those so I think it was probably a dance tune that was popularized and maybe at the servants at Hampton Court Palace got it got an earworm with it and then they in turn sang it and it kind of disseminated into mm-hmm. the Tudor public imagination yeah, so fascinating. Just, I don't know if this is the same in the US, Brooke, but when we had, we don't really have them that often anymore, but ice cream trucks here in Australia had green sleeves. That was the tune. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. No, we have, we have things like The Entertainer by Scott Joplin. So a lot of ragtime or, yeah, which is, that's really interesting. That's a great musicological course of study right there. Ice cream truck songs. No, I have no idea why. I remember hearing that as a child and I loved it. And this is way before I ever came across Henry VIII or Anne Boleyn. And I just always think how funny it is that I've been listening to that for so long, not knowing what it was until it mm-hmm. kind of clicked a few, you know, it was quite a number of years ago now. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's green sleeves that we're all well, humming. It is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> oh, look, that's another one that if you haven't had a good listen to that again, there are I do have a favorite version of that one, but I can't actually remember the person's name. It's on YouTube. So I'll have to, I might link it for everyone to listen to, but I could listen to that for hours on end. And I have done on repeat for a long time. No, it's great. There's no shame in that. There's no no shame at all. It's beautiful music. It's, it's obviously my favorite period in music history is I love a super um, moody, you know, tutor tune. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, this has been so interesting. Were there any? Was there anything else that you wanted to tell us in terms of music and death and and burials that I I may have missed or that we've missed? Well, like we've kind of touched on before, it's just this idea that music was so prolific in the Tudors' everyday life, and that and it was such an important part of this life transition and the ritual of death. And there was this kind of again this notion that with more singing, um, especially with a funeral procession, more singing of masses that might shorten one's loved ones, um, a period of time in in purgatory. And so there is kind of this mutual relationship that happens between the aristocracy that's paying for the masses to be sung, and then the poor who are in turn attending and celebrating the mass, that uh, if you're praying for a loved one or a a stranger even soul to have less time in purgatory than that in turn eliminates time for yourself to be in purgatory. So anyways, the prolificness of sound everywhere into your life, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. You're absolutely right. And even when, you know, they're off traveling, the chapel choir goes with them and it's a reduced, yes. obviously reduced numbers, but, but they're there, aren't they? They're everywhere. And, and that is, that is really important to keep in mind, I think. And there was something else you reminded me of when you mentioned the singing at, at that point in, you know, when, when people are dying that I was mm-hmm. recently talking to Naomi Kelsey, which is an author who's written a wonderful book called The Burnings. I don't know if you've read it, but I highly recommend it. Great for, um, October and Halloween um, about the Berwick witch trials. And it just reminded me of one of the things that the women were accused of. And these women were, were again, very poor women, generally midwives or healers Mm -hmm. of some sort that were accused of witchcraft, very common. And one of the things they were accused of is 
the singing they used to sing to their patients at the end especially yeah. when their patients were dying or or really unwell and that was perverted to make it sound that or to accuse them of having sung something that was you know from the devil or something that right. killed them in the end so this manipulation of this lovely thing that they were doing which is just singing for their patients to make them feel better was transformed into this awful act of having killed them through devilish words or devilish songs or tunes or something so yeah I found that really kind of disturbing to be honest yeah, it is. It is disturbing. And this is the book that's sitting right here. <laughs> oh, so Brooke's showing me the Salem witchcraft trials. Oh, that does look interesting. Yeah, but there is there continues to be this kind of contentious relationship between women and music yeah. from 16th to almost to this 18th and early 19th century ideal of the ideal woman performing chamber music or just playing on the piano in the parlor. Um, and so women continue for hundreds of years to have to walk this really fine line between the ideas of being overly seductive or bewitching or just enchanting men or a mixed audience. So between that and using music as a way to perhaps bring on a mate's attention and receive an advantageous marriage in that way. Yeah, but, they're all good points. It was a, a, a fine line and a difficult position to walk. And, and we can see people like Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard getting, of course, caught out in that yes. situation and having difficulty balancing those things where you're supposed to be yes. this sort of untouchable, you know, marble statue. But at the same time, you have to be at the center of this incredibly right. social court. So it's like, it's so hard. And you have to play the game, don't you? You do. You do. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Brooke, thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating discussion. If people want to kind of find out more about your work, what you're up to, where can they go? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Lady Tudor Music is the best place. I'm also on Facebook, same name, same handle, Lady Tudor Music, but Instagram's usually usually the best place to reach out. Send me a DM or a question or smiley face. Yeah, I have to say that's my favorite social media at the moment as well. So yeah, I recommend people jump on there. Yes. You, always, you always post such interesting things. So highly recommend it. And I'll pop the link to your uh, account in the show notes. But thank you once again for taking the time to talk Tudors with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Natalie. It's always so great to be here and so great to talk with you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.